we are, we're literally hours away. When we go into the setting here, we're hours away uh, from Jesus going to the cross, essentially. From Jesus uh, going on trial, being arrested, all of that. It's hours away. And so here he is wrapping up this time with his uh, disciples. He's been walking them through and going through this long discourse. And he's about to pray in chapter 17 here. But he closes with these words. And what he's going to uh, finish his time with the disciples uh, with is he's going to talk to them about how he's going to bring a fullness of joy that's going to uh, circumcede their circumstances, no matter how rough it gets. Remember last week he talked about uh, the persecution, uh, that, that they're gonna be kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, some of them are gonna lose their lives. And so he's told them this and, and now he's going to um, bring them up to speed with the joy that he's going to deliver into their life that's gonna supersede that opposition that they will face. And so in John chapter 16, uh, let's start with verses 16 through 22. It says this, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, now, uh, what he first kicks off with here is, is, is it, it sounds a little confusing, right? Um, a little while, I'm no longer here, then a little while, I'll be, I'll be back. Uh, and, and the disciples are sitting there, and they're confused. They're like, what return is he talking about? He's going away for a little while, and he's going to come back in a little while. What is he alluding to? You know, sometimes when you read scripture and you get confused, you can actually uh, be encouraged knowing that the people that were actually there when he was speaking, they were confused too. Uh, so you go, okay, well, they didn't get it either. Um, but what we have here is, is, is there's, there's three different um, returns he could be speaking about. And they all could make sense and work, right? Um, he could be speaking to uh, his resurrection, Right When he appears to them after his resurrection, it could be after he ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes uh, and they now um, are able to speak through uh, with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. The last return it could be alluding to is the final return of Jesus when he comes back or the second return 
coming when he comes back and takes his followers. And so it could be one of those. Uh, what it really seems to point to is his post-resurrection appearance and then ultimately the Holy Spirit coming on the scene. And, 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 and as they're confused processing this, he hears them talking to each other. Uh, he knows, like, it's a room. You're confused. Let me explain this. And what he tells them is this. You, uh, you're going to be weeping for a little while. While the world is experiencing joy. But in a short while, your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. You know, it's interesting as, as he talks about this, our greatest times of joy often rise out of our deepest moments of sadness, don't they? Some of our greatest moments of joy have come out of some deep pain. Some, some things that we wish wouldn't have happened, but, but you're able to appreciate and experience a, a fullness of joy that if uh, that, um, that challenging situation or season or event hadn't happened, you wouldn't know the fullness of the joy that you're able to have. But what we see here is, the, is, is like sorrow and joy, they're not just two random emotions uh, that happen to appear in this order. Uh, what he's saying is the sorrow must take place if the joy is to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I would like to just skip the sorrow and get the joy. In fact, I think for a lot of us, that's our prayer request. That's uh, what we're trying to accomplish. Most ladies I know would love to skip nine months of pregnancy and excruciating labor and just hold their newborns in their arms. Amen? Amen. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Right? It just doesn't work that way. You don't get the newborn without what? Ah, the morning sickness, the, um, <laughs> the late night gnarly cravings. Uh, the swollen ankles, the, the contractions, all of these things that are just awful. Not that I know. <laughs> just want to be clear. I feel the heat. <laughs> Even through the screen. Jesus tells the disciples, the joy is going to come through the sorrow. The sorrow is watching Jesus beaten, watching Jesus hang lifeless on a cross. They are going to weep at his death while the world rejoices because he's gone. But his death is necessary because it's the only way for humanity to be saved. Without his death, there can be no life. And so the sorrow of his death is necessary, but it'll only be for a little while as he says, why? Because Jesus is going to rise again from the dead and their mourning will turn into joy. You know, after, uh, after a baby's born, it's, it's not like the pain of pregnancy is gone, from what I hear, <laughs> right? The pain didn't just disappear. It just no longer matters. The nine months of agony become this, this distant memory after experiencing the joy of this little baby, See, the disciples' sorrow will become a distant memory when Jesus appears to them after conquering death. 
Now, what's so important here, and, and, and I, I believe this is one of the most important pieces of this whole text this morning, is this. Jesus wasn't saying that the event causing their sorrow would be replaced by another event producing joy, but rather that the same event that caused their mourning, the cross, would be the cause of their joy. That is absolutely huge for us this morning. Jesus didn't say that the mother's pain was replaced by joy, but that the pain was transformed into joy. Did you catch that? It's the same baby that caused the pain that also caused the joy. And they become a pain again. No. <laughs> right? It's the same baby. It's the same baby that, that just wrecks for nine months of just havoc and all of these things. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, and man, I, like I said, I was just in the room, but man, I remember at watching all three, we have three, all three of them. And, 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 it, and it was just like excruciating pain. And, and it's like, what can I do? How can I help you? And I'm like asking the doctor, what can I do? Uh, and they're just like, throw ice in her mouth. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. You know, and, and, and just whatever I could do to help with the pain because the pain was awful. It just, it, it looked awful. And, and then all of a sudden, and some of you, whether you've had a child or not, you've been in the room or you, all of a sudden, just like that, it's like a baby and, and you're just, you're just, you're a wreck, a wreck of joy. There's just joy. Immediately, same baby, same baby. And all of a sudden transformed into joy. Um, I was meeting with uh, a newer father, a new father in our church this week. And we were meeting and we're like halfway through talking or, and, uh, and he goes, oh, I got to show you this picture. My daughter laughed for the first time last night. And it was the greatest moment of joy ever. And I was like, ooh, I'm talking about that Sunday. And, uh, and he sends me this picture. Now, listen, it would be bad if it was my kid. It's not, so just, it's okay. You guys, you guys gotta see this little picture of this little girl. I mean, I know, I know. It's not mine, so don't send me hate. Like, it, 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 like, look at that. Now, they don't come out looking like that, okay? We know that. Um, some things happen, but you can, take, you can take her off or no one will look at me the rest of the, the sermon. I'll just be staring at the monster screen there. Um, but I, I want you to just, I mean, you see what happened? You guys, like everything I've said to you, but you see that one image and you're like, oh, God, you know, joy. And, and I think there's a reason he used that as an example. I think there's a reason because there's just something about that. 
There's something about the purity there. There's something about that joy. There's something about, that's just a different kind of joy. It's not like completing a project is different. And the fact that he literally uses that to describe the joy that Jesus brings into our life, the joy essentially of the Christian life, the joy that should be uh, a hallmark of the Christian life. Like, like when you look at this, uh, it's God taking impossible situations, times of mourning, and him transforming those very things into joy. Only he can do that. And in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, verse five, uh, the nation of Israel's traveling and, and, and the Moabites are supposed to greet them and welcome them and they do the opposite. Uh, they actually uh, pay a false prophet to curse the Israelites. And uh, in Deuteronomy 23, five, it says, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Literally taking and turning that curse into a blessing. Okay, over and over in scripture, we see God doing this, you guys. We see this uh, being played out where, it's, where he literally takes something that was evil, done for evil, something bad, something tragic, something painful, and he doesn't bring something separate. He actually takes and uses that thing and, transform it in, and transforms it into his greatest good, into his greatest joy. When you look at Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph is a guy that literally his brothers, uh, they wanted to kill him. And they felt like they were letting him off easy by selling him into slavery. Fantastic brothers. And, and when you look at his life, you see this incredible journey. And, and over and over again, you, you start thinking, man, it's got to turn for this guy. It's got to get better. And it just seems like over and over again, it just gets worse. And then there's like moments, there's flickers of hope. And, and then something happens. You're like, okay, he's out. It's going to work out. No. And it's this journey, but then all of a sudden you get to the end of Genesis and all of a sudden this dude is the second most powerful guy in all of Egypt, the greatest power at the time. And here he is, and guess who's bowing down to him? His brothers. Guys, he couldn't have gotten that position any other way than being sold into slavery. And he literally says in Genesis 50, 20, to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God took and turned for good. That's the business that he's in that only he can do, that only he can accomplish. We see it all throughout. When, when, when the nation of Israel is being persecuted by the Egyptians, we see uh, King Saul pursuing uh, David in the Old Testament after David's already been said, you're gonna be the next king, and here he is being chased around, and God's like, I'm gonna use that. You guys, the resurrection caused the disciples to view the cross as a source of, of joy. The very thing that had brought all that sorrow and pain, the imagery. And because of the resurrection, even they now view the cross as the ultimate source of joy. And we see that throughout the New Testament. In Galatians 6, 14, Paul talks about this when he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's 
that's what I boast in. That's what I preach. That's the message. That's what I look to, he's saying, is the cross. The cross is foundational to Christian joy because it's the basis of our redemption. And in verse 22, uh, he talks about uh, the joy that he gives the disciples can never be taken away from them. You hear that? It can never be taken away. Now, now when I hear that, why does it feel like our joy can be taken away from us? Why does it feel that way? Why do I feel that way? Why do I observe that in other people's lives, uh, other Jesus followers' lives? Why does it seem like people have the power to steal our joy? You know, some of you have had some unkind words spoken to you, and it hurt. Maybe it was even true, but, but you had some, some words that, that, man, they just cut deep, as someone said to you. And maybe they didn't even mean it in a malicious way, but it just hurt, stole some joy. Maybe someone was deceptive with you, dishonest. They lied to you, stole some joy. Maybe someone has been gossiping about you, talking about you, and you find out, and it just hurts, and it's not even true. Or maybe you've been hearing other people gossip about someone you care deeply about. And it just steals joy. You guys, Jesus says the disciples' joy cannot be stolen because their joy is found in him. In his victory, in his finished work on the cross. See, Satan desires to steal our joy, okay? And, 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 and here's the reality. It's not too hard for him to do that right now. It hasn't been. And he's been very successful at it. Why? Why has it been uh, not that difficult for him to steal our joy? Because we place our joy, and, and for a lot of us, we have uh, seen this in ourselves in the last almost two years now. Uh, we, we've seen that he's been able to steal our joy because we've actually, maybe for the first time, identified some of these other things we've been placing our joy upon. We've been placing our joy on things like relationships, right? For some of us, uh, it's, it's a friendship. Uh, for some of us, we're, we're in this dating relationship and our joy, now we'll say I love Jesus, but our joy is resting on this relationship working out. For some of us in our, in our marriage, uh, we'll say I love, I love Jesus, but at the end of the day, your joy is only attached to your marriage, and, 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 and if your marriage is, is, is struggling at all or, or something's not right with your spouse, your joy is robbed. It, 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 it doesn't work anymore because everything is about your uh, marriage, your family. For some of us, it is our joy in life rides on our kids. And I can't think of a clearer example than your response when I put someone else's kid on the video, Right? immediately, right? We love our kids and you should love your kids or somebody else's kids that your uh, uh, father or mother figure they become an idol. How quickly does my joy start to rest on my kids becoming or doing or saying what I hope they become? And that is a dangerous game. For some of us, it's been our work. My joy is attached to my work, how my work is going, my job situation, my boss, my coworkers. 
Uh, for some of us, it's been our money, uh, right? If I've got enough zeros there, my joy is full. I'm good. I'm happy. Life's okay because that is secure and I feel secure. And so for some of us, it's all about our security. Our joy rests in our security. I've shared a couple times that one of the things that was revealed to me is how my joy in a lot of ways was resting on my routine. I am a big routine person. And man, the last two years have been a train wreck to routine people. How many of you routine person? Yeah, I know, I feel you. I could eat the same lunch every day for the rest of eternity and be happy. It's like, I am, I am routine. And I love that and I believe in it. And I'll tell you what, man, I have been a wreck and I've seen things in me and I'm like, where is this coming from? And it's like, man, I have held to that routine. And he's like, I wanna break our health. And there's so much going on with our, with our health. It's just unexplainable, catches us off guard. It is not dependable and you should not be resting on that for your joy. But we have been. All these things we have relied on for our joy and we've seen us literally come to this place where it's obvious that we're not experiencing the joy that we just read about. Those things are secure. Guys, if, if our joy comes from Jesus... What in the world could the devil use to steal your joy? If your joy is in Jesus, what we're reading about. Why, why do I say that? Like, what, what could he possibly do? Why? Because Jesus already took his greatest attack, his best, his best shot. He took it and he not only defeated him, but he actually used that very attack and brought about the greatest amount of joy. You guys, if we find our joy in him, it cannot be taken. It can't. If it's taken, you're giving it. And, and, and he keeps going in verses 23 and 24. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, so after his ascension, uh, the disciples would have the privilege of going directly to the Father and asking him to do whatever they need, and he promises to answer. So, and we've been talking about this the last few months. So does this mean that if I go to God and ask him, he has to give me whatever I want? Is that what you're saying? Now there's two of you in this room, Right? You're the ones hoping I say that's true. The others are hoping like I don't say it's true or you're gonna leave the church, right? And, 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 and so literally, what, what does that mean? Well, Jesus promises what? The Father will answer every request made in his name. That's, a, that's important. Now what that doesn't mean is me using his name at the end of my prayers, like a formula that I believe will guarantee its success, okay? It's to pray when I pray in Jesus's name, consistent with his will. It's to pray with align my dependence on him. That's why I pray in his name and not mine. And it always has the goal that he'd be glorified in the answer. That's so important. 
You guys, I just want you, for context here, think about what Jesus has just been talking to the disciples about. Think about it. Like he's just gotten done sharing how you're gonna be cast out, which many viewed worse than death. You're gonna be cast out of the synagogue and also many of you are going to lose your lives for my sake, okay? So when you think about him immediately after that, bringing this promise of answered prayer, what do you think he's talking about when he says pray like this? He's not talking about us praying for earthly like comforts, right? He's not praying like, hey, God, my back's a little sore. Could you, could you soften that Tempur-Pedic for me? It's a little softer. God, people are talking about me again. Oh. Yeah, I think it's persecution, God. God, it's just tough right now. It's raining again. Right? Like, that makes no sense in this context, does it? Does it? There to pray for what? For the kingdom of heaven to advance in this world. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when he's talking about praying in this way, giving this model for prayer, he says, Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this daily bread. Just give me what I need for today and I'm gonna trust you with the rest. Just give me whatever I need to accomplish your will. Where did that prayer request go, you guys? Where? When did it all of a sudden become, I want this and this and this, and then you're gonna need to do this, but your will be done in Jesus' name. Right? What happened there, you guys? Um, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray for the advancement of his kingdom, not the establishment of our own. Okay? So, so how does prayer then fit? How does it? He says it's going to make your joy full when he talks about prayer. Guys, prayer is how we commune with Jesus. And communion with Jesus is where we find joy. The disciples' sorrow turns to joy when? When they're reunited with Jesus in his presence again. And so after his ascension, when he goes back to heaven to the Father, prayer is the way to be in his presence. And so joy comes as we ask Jesus to help us fulfill the mission he gave us. And then he responds, as we looked at last week, with the power we need and with a joy that will overflow. There is fullness of joy in his response to that prayer, it says. So what does this point back to? It points back to my prayer life. If my prayer, if, if like, if I'm just throwing up these, hey, have a good day, God. Glad you're with me. And I'm not like pursuing him being in his presence, cultivating, growing that relationship with him. Guys, and, and I'm reading fullness of joy here. You're not going to get it because he says it, it comes with that communion with him. And, 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 and as you request, he responds and you experience a fullness of joy that if you're not making any of these requests, you're just not seeing it in your life. So yeah, this is going to feel foreign. 
But he keeps going in verses 25 through 27. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So during their time with Jesus, the disciples often failed to understand him. Why? Because he would speak sometimes in figurative language, right? We would speak in parables and, and sometimes the whole crowd would be like, what? What is he talking about? What does he mean? But Jesus here is promising them that an hour was coming, it was already there, where he was no longer going to speak figuratively to them and he would tell them plainly of the Father's will and we know this happens through the Holy Spirit. The disciples were going to understand more fully Jesus' relationship to the Father and the Father's love for them. When you look at uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and you see the church explode on the scene of the book of Acts, you see them understanding with clarity and purpose the message, the heart, and the intent of Jesus for the mission. You see clarity. They speak with clarity. They receive it with clarity. Okay, and, 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 and so uh, they were going to have this privilege. It's talking about of making their request directly to the Father. It says, because the, because the Father loves them, and they loved and believed in Jesus. And then he keeps going in verses 28 through 32. It says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. Oh, I would just slap him. And now we know, and now we know. Are you kidding? Oh, it's so frustrating. Makes you just want to cross it out, but it's the design word of God. Okay. You are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. So Jesus affirms his deity, right? He says, I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. And the disciples are like, oh, we finally get it. We're hearing you plainly and clearly. You're not speaking figuratively. And you know what? They affirm his deity. They do. They affirm his deity. But Jesus, once again, he knows their hearts. And he responds, do you, do you now believe? Do you now believe? Now, now, he's not discrediting the genuineness of their faith. What he's alluding to is, man, you still have a ways to go. There's a lot of immaturity here still. Why? Because the sad reality is that in a few hours, they would all abandon him. They'd all abandon him. When you look at scripture, man, uh, if you're like, oh, I need people, whoo. It's tough if you're going to live for Jesus. It really is. In fact, uh, Paul, at the end of his life, he's all alone in, in Rome, in, 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 in jail, and he writes his second letter to Timothy. And this is what he says. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, 16 and 17, and he's going to allude to his first defense. And he knows his time is near. He knows he's about to be executed. And he says this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Do you hear that? Do you know how hard that is? Like, like it's one thing to read it, but like you, you look at Paul, gave up everything to follow Jesus, to pursue the mission that he had for him, going into all these cities, going through just stuff you and I can't even imagine as far as persecution goes. And, and, and here he is, you would assume there would be all these Jesus followers there in support, standing with him. I mean, I would assume thousands would be there, right? Trying to get into that trial. And yet, what does he say? I stood there and no one was there, no one. No one. In fact, before he shares that, he talks about some of his followers that had said, hey, the world's better. I'm gonna go that route. But what did he say? What did he say? Was he really alone? Was he alone? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Guys, Jesus faced this same situation and he knew that the father would be with him. He told his disciples, you're gonna run, you're gonna hide, but the father's gonna stay with me. I'm not gonna be alone. And you know what? You and I, if we're Jesus' father, we have the father. We have the father. Now, I wanna be really clear on this because I know when I say the word father, every time I say it, for some of you that are wounded or have been hurt or someone has modeled or reflected father in a, in a bad way. And I know that every time you hear that word, it just hurts. You, you don't even like it. And so you have a really tough time looking at God and not connecting it to an experience maybe you had with an earthly father. You, I wanna tell you right now, I'm not talking about an earthly father here. I am talking about the heavenly father. The heavenly father who sent his son for you and for me. Guys, you say, I've, you say, I've been abandoned. Abandoned, I'm, I'm alone. I'm the only one in my family trying to follow Jesus. I'm the only one of my friends. I'm the only one in my relationship. I'm the only one at my work. I'm the only one on my team, in my classes, at my house. I'm just trying to make it, but I am all alone. Can we just stop it? Can we stop? You're not. You're not alone. If you are saying, I'm all alone, you are discrediting what we're reading here. The father is with you. The very same father who sent the son to sacrifice his life for you so that you could have access to the father, a relationship with the father, so that you could take your prayers directly to the father. He says, I will never leave you or abandon you. So you're not alone which culminates to verse 33, which is one of the most powerful verses in scripture. He says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Oh. You guys, a lack of joy in this world, it always comes back to a lack of peace with God. 
And when I talk about peace here, peace is not this temporary experience or momentary emotion uh, that, that we're that we're purchasing, that we're going after. It's not this like high that, that we get to experience. Supernatural peace uh, is guaranteed for everyone who follows Jesus. But we have to battle the unbelief. We have to battle the doubt that creeps into our mind because what is it doing? It's calling Jesus a liar to you. That doubt. He's lying. No, no. That fear, ah, he's lying to you. And all the enemy wants to do is steal your joy. We have to take more time identifying what is robbing our joy. Because I tell you what, when you look across the Christian landscape, man, there is not a lot of joy, is there, that we're seeing, that we're hearing, that we're experiencing. And so we've got to take the time to ask, what is robbing me from my joy? And you guys, sometimes, honestly, it's just sin. Sometimes for some of us, there is something specific in your life and, and, and maybe you're just refusing to acknowledge it or, or, or deal with it, or maybe you know about it. And, but you're still coming, you're still going through the motions, you're still, you're still praying in all of this. And you're like, well, Steve, I don't have this joy. And I'm like, I know, I know. Because right now there is distance, there is a disconnect between you following Jesus. Right? Like, like, like if, if sin, always the worst part about it is you guys, it creates distance between us and God. And so there's no way when, when joy comes from our proximity with God that I can just willfully disobey him and go, oh, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna experience all of this. He's like, no, you're not. So you gotta deal with that. You have to deal with that. Guys, listen, you're like, no, Steve, this isn't true. I haven't experienced it. I would say, if you're telling me that there is something in your life right now that is in opposition to him or this, because the other option that I see most of the time is, misplaced priorities. What happens is we take in so much of the world and all that it has for us and all that it offers and the joy, uh, well, it's joy is like meal replacements that it wants to bring into your life to the point where you're experiencing this satisfaction Satisfaction, uh, but it's not a full satisfaction. It's not the fullness of joy. It's just enough to keep you consuming it. Why? Because if you keep consuming it, you will not have place in your life for the joy of Christ. You're already full. We haven't left place for him. You guys, re remember, we who say we've believed are what? We're called to be in Jesus, in Jesus. That's how we experience joy and peace in the times of trouble, in the persecution that he says you're going to have. We're the branches connected to the true vine. We receive our strength and our nourishment through the vine. Now, we may still have tribulation in the world, but in 
Jesus, we have peace, a peace that fuels a joy that rises above the circumstances of our lives. And you guys, I'm just telling you right now, the world is going to do everything it can to try to steal that joy away the joy that should be ours in Jesus. But this is when we remember what this verse says. This is when we remember, but he what? He overcame the world. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Guys, it it isn't because we have the power to beat the world. That's not how this works. That's not where we get our joy in our ability to overpower uh, the world. In fact, you don't have the power to do that, right? Uh, Many of us have have tried to do our best to accomplish this joy, and we're like, man, I just made more of a mess. In fact, I'm more miserable. I'm more broke. I got bigger issues. My marriage isn't fixed. My life's not fixed. I didn't get hired. All of these things, And, 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 and... it's, it's not because of that power. It's because he overcame the world for us. First John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we are overcomers because he's first overcome for us. That's why 1 John 4, 4 says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I could do verses all day on this. So we read that, we see it. So why in the world does it appear like Jesus' followers lack joy? Why? If this is true, Why? Guys, just so you know, if you're saying I'm a Jesus follower and you're living your life without the joy that he says is a byproduct of walking with him, what, I'm, what we're essentially communicating is that the world is greater than him. That's what's happening. You know, I think as I've been wrestling with this, I'm like, man, why is this? Why is this happening? Why do I see this lack of joy with Jesus followers? I mean, the world, yeah, but man, even Jesus followers, just an absence of joy. You know what I think is, what I think has been happening? And it's kind of been revealed in the last couple of years here. I think we've been pretending that our joy is complete in Jesus and the enemy has just called our bluff. And I want to speak directly to like our nation where we live and as Christians, the, the blessings we have. I think that one of the greatest dangers that I'm seeing that's stealing our joy isn't that we've said, God, I'm removing you from my joy. I don't think that's the biggest thing that I'm seeing happen. It's that we've been attaching and looking to attach his joy to conditional things. So we're still saying what we believe we need to say, reading what we need to believe, praying and and we're attending and all of these things that he asks us to do, but we're taking his joy, we're acknowledging it, but we're actually attaching it to 
something else to where if that something else doesn't work out, what happens? You're not experiencing the fullness of joy that he promised, right? Well, why? Because I've taken his joy and his design for joy. And and what I've actually said is, that's great. It's just not great enough. It needs some of this. It needs some of that. It would be a little better if, if it had this outcome. And so what do we do? What have we done as Jesus followers? We've taken these words, we've taken his joy, and we've said, that's great. I want all of it. I want to worship to that, all of those things. But what our heart and our attitude and our mindset's reflecting is that joy is not the evidence of truth. It's the absence of that truth because we're taking it and we are saying, it is joy if this works out for me. And what have we seen? All of these things, these sources of joy that we've been relying on, what have they not done? They haven't worked out. He's called our bluff. This means that he's not enough for us. And I think that it's only worked because honestly, our lives have been pretty good, huh? Our lives have been pretty good. And so this morning, I want to ask, what is the source of your joy? What is it? Don't give me the Jesus. If it is, yeah, but I want you to really think about, maybe it's asking, what can't be taken from you? That's a tough one. Guys, some of you are here and you're like, it was taken from me. It was taken. I want to read 33 again. I want to close with this. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Guys, that's it. That's it. So don't let any of these things take away from his joy. Stop. Whatever's replaced it, deal with it today. Don't leave the room with it. If it's something you're doing, you're thinking, uh, get rid of it, okay? If, it, if, it's, if it's a situation, if it's a mindset, uh, if your love is just being misplaced. Guys, I'll tell you what's so cool. If you're like, oh, I just need this relationship to work or, or I wanna be a better, uh, maybe it's a better dad. I wanna be a better husband or a wife or, or a grandparent or, or influence in that. You guys, when Jesus is your greatest source of joy, you're better at all those things. When you're not great at those things is when you say, everything rests on that. Everything rests on that. Then it's all you. Your joy will never be made full there. It just never will. There's too many stories that speak the opposite. But he says, by authority of scripture, I have overcome the world and my joy supersedes whatever circumstance you're gonna face. And because of the cross, I'm actually gonna take this thing, this situation, this relationship, this hindrance, this mourning, and I'm gonna turn it into joy. I will transform it. Only he can promise you that. Let's pray.